Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Ernie Bringus. Ernie received his Master of Divinity degree from United Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio, during the early 1960s. And while he was a divinity student, Ernie and his partner, Phil Stewart, founded a rock group that came to be known as the Rip Chords, and they even had five hit singles between 1962 and 1965. In 1966, he was ordained as a minister of the United Methodist Church, and he served in various positions at churches in California and Texas for almost 20 years before venturing into academic studies. He taught religious studies at Arizona State University and presently teaches at Glendale Community College in Arizona. Ernie has authored three books, and today we are going to discuss his latest one, Jesus Gate, A History of Concealment Unraveled from Rainbow Ridge Books. Welcome, Ernie. I'm delighted you could join us. Miriam, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me on your show. You know, Jesus Gate was a fascinating look at the origins of Christianity and the Jesus tradition and about the process of canonization and biblical criticism in general. Thank you, because I really learned so much from it. Um, let's start with your title, Jesus Gate. Tell right. us what were the parallels between the Watergate cover-up that it's obviously a reference to and, and the, uh, and the notions of conspiracy and the church fathers. Right. Well, first of all, we have to make sure that uh, this isn't looked upon as a conspiracy uh, where you have uh, the clergy getting all together and, and making a decision to hide things from, from the public or from their, their congregants. Um, but it's, it's more a conspiracy of silence. Uh, there, there's been so much information regarding the Jesus tradition and uh, Christianity in general. And most of that information has been, uh, well, it's bottlenecked. Uh, It doesn't get past the clergy down to the layperson, and therefore it doesn't get to the general public. And uh, so when I thought of the book, the title Jesus Gate, I thought of Watergate because uh, it's an association that's negative. Uh, It's pejorative, I realize, and that might turn some people off. But on the other hand, it, it's, uh, it, it brings attention to the work and to the fact that a lot of this information that scholars now know about Christianity uh, has, has not filtered down to the lay person. We have no trickle-down knowledge, I should say. And uh, so that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, and that's why the title Jesus Gate. Uh, and obviously it's, it, it is a negative in terms of how it relates to Watergate. Because although Watergate was a definite conspiracy, it was and it was very very quick. It was over a short period of time, whereas Jesus Gate has really transcended uh, the centuries. Let's start with the notion of the Bible as direct revelation from God. Um, this is something that you very clearly. Uh, raise very severe questions about. I mean, I I think you pretty much put to rest that it was the creation of of humans um, and 
what is your motivation in making this so clear? Well, I think part of the problem that it's not just Christianity, whether it's the Islamic religion or whatever religion, one of the problems uh, that we find is that generally when people assume that they have God's Word in their hand, that this is a direct revelation from God, and therefore whatever the Bible or the Quran or any other religious book says must be the absolute truth and the absolute Word of God. There's no critical thinking about how this revelation came through the, the human prism, uh, through the human dimension, and, uh, and therefore it should not be taken as an absolute infallible, inerrant, that means without error, um, it should not be taken in that regard, because when you do that, it creates so many problems in terms of how you behave and how you act and how you act out in the world. That's part of the problem we had with 9-11, uh, with people taking the Quran too literally and, and not making critical judgments about what the book is actually saying. That's what happened to the Bible when we went through the, the witch hunt during the Middle Ages, and uh, we lost something like between, uh, depending on the historian you read, we lost somewhere between one and nine million women uh, were burned at the stake were killed in other ways uh, because of the witch hunts craze. And, and why did that come about? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons was that the Bible stated that there were witches. You can find this in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, and then the Bible tells you what you have to do to the witches. You've got to kill them. Well, if you don't, you know, today we don't look at that seriously, but back then, thinking that the Bible was the absolute word of God, well, there must be witches and we must kill them. So this leads to all kinds, taking the Bible literally can lead to all kinds of problems. Uh, even even in the, with the gay issue, for example, uh, in the New Testament, uh, gays are an abomination uh, to God, and they deserve to die. And so, you know, you take all these things, and if you don't, uh, and women, what about women in the, in the New Testament? They're not supposed to teach, not supposed to have any authority over men. I mean, a lot of this was just bias from the time in which those particular words were written. So you have to discriminate when you read any religious book uh, and understand that it, uh, the influences of the culture of the time do make their way into the text. That was a point that you very clearly brought out. When you discussed how these texts were compiled, um, and how they were transcribed by the scribes, and how the scribes themselves allowed their own personal biases to enter into what they were writing by changing a word here or there. That's correct. Uh, that was that was quite fascinating. By the way, huh. just to show you that I read the entire book, <laughs> on, on your very last page you have a major typo. Oh, I do. Well, you actually, I found one uh, on page... Uh, 150 there was a typo but where did where's your where did you find um when you discuss the uh, uh the story of noah uh-huh and you talk about oh gilgamesh uh, the gilgamesh epic as being yeah. about 2500 bc and the story of noah's ark as 950 ad you surely meant oh my gosh are you serious? I am serious. Yes. Oh, oh no. 
Oh, golly. I can't believe this. I got to look. I got to look. Yeah, oh, my I can God. tell you it's page 273. But. Okay. I'm actually glad because, you know, it, it, it was such a clangor for me that I, I went and I started doing some research about when the Book of Noah and, in fact, the, the five books of Moses were uh, committed to writing. Right. Uh-huh. And then I discovered that just like in the, the, old, the New Testament, there were four or five different versions of the Old Testament. There was the Yahwist version. There was the priestly version. Right. So on. And I never knew that. So Yeah, that, that's true. Even that, the Jewish... That a little complicated. <laughs> yeah, but even... I, that, that's really not my specialty, the Old Testament. Uh-huh. Uh, but, yeah, we, we learned that we went to seminary. There were, there were different... Uh, eras in which uh, the, the books were written, and sometimes uh, they would go back and modify some of the earlier works, uh, and so scholars, when they're reading that, they have to distinguish be- between the different uh, uh, times in which sections of the same book were written, uh-huh. because they were not all written at the same time. Yeah. Um, so they have to keep, yeah, it, it, it's very interesting, and the literary DNA from that time is sometimes uh, a giveaway as to when certain portions of any particular book were written. Some were written, uh, you can have, for example, the book of Leviticus. Uh, most of it was written very early, but there are some sections that were added to it at a much later time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it gets a little confusing sometimes when somebody's reading that because they think they're reading about a certain time segment, but in reality, there might be a couple or three, four hundred years ahead of them. Well, what I found, what I found so interesting was that, you know, I've, I've been hearing about, uh, you know, the Council of Nicaea, which we'll go into in a moment, and, and how the, um, the New Testament, um, authorship was very questionable as to who wrote what, but I never, thought that the Torah, the five books of Moses, were subject to the same kinds of free-flowing uh, amendments. And to discover, you know, the subjective feeling when you discover that something that you thought was fixed was not that fixed, I think right. is something that possibly the readers of your book will be feeling as well. So let's go, let's go back to the time of Jesus and the Gospels. Um, let's start with your uh, very interesting description of how, um, Mark was the first Gospel and, and the, the, um, copying that went on from the, uh, Luke and Matthew, and then John being a separate entity altogether. Right. Lay now, the groundwork for us, Ernie. Pardon? Please lay the groundwork for oh, us. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, well, first of all, I want to tell you, and certainly your readers or your listeners need to, to hear this. This is not uh, my opinion or my uh, personal discoveries. I'm I'm reflecting in my book, Jesus Gate, the findings of mainstream scholarship, so that uh, what you're getting in my book is basically what's being taught at Oxford University, UCLA, Harvard, Yale, community colleges across the country. It doesn't matter. This is pretty standard stuff. But because of Jesus Gate, because 
ministers have not been able or, or uh, have been unwilling to filter this information down to laity, uh, it's it's pretty new stuff to people that are reading it. So, But I want your listeners to understand this isn't coming from me, although I do make some observations and some, uh, you know, comments of my own uh, insights. But generally, this information comes from mainstream religious scholarship. Okay, so now, talking about the New Testament. Yes, uh, scholars have discovered, uh, when you look at the New Testament, the first four books that you find in the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, they were not, even though they, they, the, the New Testament appears to be chronologically ordered, it is not. The, the first four Gospels were not written until after the epistles of Paul, the letters of Paul. So they've got that kind of backwards, but that's... That's no big deal, except that sometimes it does make a difference when you're trying to figure out who's saying what and when did this happen. Uh, but according to scholarship, Mark is the first gospel to be written. It was written around 70 uh, CE, what most people call AD. We call it the Common Era, CE. And uh, some of that is based on the fact that Mark reports things, uh, for example, uh, he alludes to or implies uh, something regarding the destruction of the temple, which we know didn't occur, uh, it was destroyed by the Romans between 67 and 70 A.D. I'm going to use A.D. instead of C.E. because I think that's what your listeners are used to. So anyway, so we know about the time that Paul, or, or I'm sorry, that Mark couldn't have been written before 67 because he's talking about an event that occurred between 67 and 70. Now, we know that Matthew and Luke followed Mark because they copy Mark. Ninety percent of Mark reappears in the Gospel of Matthew, and 60 percent, 60 to 70 percent of Mark reappears in Luke's Gospel. They are copying and using Mark's Gospel as a foundation for their own. And then they add material of their own, of course, and so we know, uh, and that tells us a couple of things. It tells us, first of all, that Matthew, for example, was not an eyewitness. He was not a disciple of Jesus. If he were a disciple of Jesus, why would he be copying Mark's gospel? Because Mark wasn't uh, even a disciple or never claimed to be and isn't thought of uh, being a disciple. So why would, uh, why would Matthew, who supposedly was a disciple, copying Mark? So when, when they look at these things, and I begin to try to uh, understand the meanings behind all of these findings, they realize certain things. Uh, for example, the, the Gospels are not, are not eyewitness accounts to the ministry of Jesus. Uh, so that, that's one effect that we find very early on. We, we also find, uh, I might be straying here a little bit, we also find conflicts and contradictions between the Gospels. Uh, some are pretty serious, and some are just, you know, they're, they're not much, but nevertheless, there are differences. Uh, most people, for example, well, wait, let me, let me stop, let me stop, let me go back here, because I haven't said everything about the Gospels I, I really should say. The, uh, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you put them in the order they were written, it's really Mark, Matthew, and Luke. These three Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels. And the word synoptic, scholars mean by this word that they have a similar view, synoptic, synonymous, optic view or lens. Uh, they have a similar view of Jesus. So they tell pretty much the same story of what Jesus said and where he went, what he did, 
And then when you get to the Gospel of John, which is the last Gospel to be written, it was written somewhere between 90 and 100 A.D., that's the last Gospel to be written, it's the furthest away from the event it describes, or the events he describes. Uh, in this particular Gospel, uh, Jesus is deified to the max. He, The way I tell my students is that in the first three Gospels, Jesus is Clark Kent. But in the Gospel of John, the last Gospel, he is Superman. <laughs> he is really deified. And even the first verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, this, what we call Christology, the image of Jesus, the natures of Jesus, has really, uh, is really risen to a new level. And, and that's because as the Gospels progress, the stories become more embellished, shall we say. It's, it's, and this is true of any literature. Uh, one of the fundamental rules and understandings of any textual criticism or literary criticism is that any document, the, the further the document gets away from the event it describes, is generally less reliable and less historical. There are exceptions, but not very many. And certainly we can see that progression of Jesus, how he's elevated, uh, because Mark, really, Jesus is fairly grounded, and Matthew takes it up a notch, and then Luke takes it up a notch, and then John just blows, you know, just really uh, emphasizes the divinity of Jesus, way beyond what the other three Gospels do. Well, to understand why that probably happened, uh, tell us what the early followers of Jesus were like, and and then uh, what were the proselytizing efforts of his disciples? Well, okay, well, one thing we need to understand is, first of all, the early Christians uh, were definitely Jews. They were, they were Jewish, they were Jews. Christianity, when it started out, was a sect. It was a sect of Judaism. It was not an independent religion, and the early followers, uh, the disciples, uh, all worshipped in the synagogue alongside the Jews. The, the Jews had several sects. They had Christianity, they had the Essenes, they had uh, the Pharisees, they had the Sadducees. So Christianity fit right in, uh, but eventually, because uh, that Christian-Jewish sect kept promoting the idea that uh, Jesus was indeed the Messiah that had been awaited by the Jews for many, for many centuries. Uh, uh, they believed that, and then they started emphasizing the resurrection story of Jesus to prove the point. Uh, so uh, it became too much of a split. It was a bridge too far for, for uh, Orthodox Jews, and so basically they persecuted the Christian sect and eventually pushed them out of the synagogue, and the Christians said, well, that's okay, we're on our way anyway, we got a whole new message here, and it doesn't fit with Orthodox Judaism. And of course, Paul, the Apostle um, Paul, uh, because of his missionary efforts, and by the way, he was a Jew, a very, he was a Pharisee, and he hated Christians when he started out. I mean, he was out to persecute them, but he had this conversion experience, an incredible experience, and he turns and begins uh, proselytizing. He goes out as a missionary, all in the Mediterranean basin, all around that area, and he starts new churches. And that's really 
by the time 100 A.D. rolls around, the Church is up and running and really breaking away from Judaism, somewhere between 70 and 100 A.D. And, of course, all the groundwork had already been laid by Paul, because Paul dies around 65 A.D., so his churches are up and running, and, and somewhere between 70 and 100 A.D., the, the Church finally establishes itself as a separate entity from Judaism. So tell us about Jesus Gate 1. Oh, Jesus Gate 1, yeah. That, <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I guess we need to uh, let your listeners know that uh, there are several Jesus Gate episodes in the book that I try to explain. Uh, some, and Jesus Gate, basically, for the listener, is that there, this is the information that I, I present in the book that I feel is missing uh, from the Church that, that lay people haven't been told. Jesus Gate 1 really talks about the mystery religions that surrounded Christianity at the point of inception, of its, of its beginning. In other words, uh, historical scholars go back and, and they ask the question, what was going on uh, around Jesus and around Christianity at the time it got started? But what is the first century cosmology worldview uh, like at that time? And what they discover is that there were uh, there was an abundance of of what we call mystery or pagan religions. They were all over the place. And when I was growing up in the church, the only thing, of course, that was presented to me was Christianity. And uh, they told me about uh, you know special uh, the baptism, uh, communion, resurrection stories, uh, virgin birth of Jesus, all this. Well, well, I thought all that was unique to Christianity, but as it turns out. There were religions surrounding Christianity, and, and all of these predate, come before Christianity by hundreds of years. They predate Christianity, and they already had all of these concepts. They were already in vogue. Um, let me give you an example. This is a prime example. Uh, well, there are several here. Virgin births, for example. I mean, anyone who was anyone had to have a virgin birth. This was part of your resume if you were going to be anybody at the time that Jesus lived. I mean, we have, uh, even Pythagoras was said to have been born of a virgin. And then uh, we have Alexander the Great, long before, 300 years before Jesus, was said to have been born of a virgin. The Emperor Augustus was born of a virgin. All the imp- I mean, anyone who was anyone, you had to have this on your resume. This is the way to attract attention to your guy. Hey, look at here, this guy's special, his virgin birth. And then we have a host of resurrection stories, especially in the mystery religions. For example, the Roman god Attis. Uh, we have literature that tells us that he was killed on the 22nd of March and rose again on the 25th of March. Gee, that sounds familiar. That's a three-day resurrection. Uh, the Egyptian uh, god Osiris, he was killed on the 17th and resurrected on the 19th. And that's actually more in line with Christianity, because Jesus dies on a Friday and is resurrected on a Sunday. And then we have the Greek god Adonis, and we don't have the exact dates on him, but we have writings that tell us that he resurrected three days after his death. And then there's the Persian god, Mithra, and Mithra, my gosh, uh, he, he almost mimics, and, and again, this predates Christianity by like something like 500 years, he almost mimics the birth story of Jesus. He's born in a cave in a manger setting. He has a virgin birth. He's uh, surrounded by shepherds uh, at his birth. Uh, he's born on the 25th of December. 
Uh, in fact, that's where Christianity gets its date. It borrows it from some of these pagan religions. Um, but these are, you know, these are, what happens is this. When you, when you get this information, uh, whether you're a Christian or not, you have to ask yourself the question, and this is what scholars always ask themselves, what does this mean that all of these concepts, uh, special baptisms, resurrections, virgin births, all this stuff is already in vogue before Christianity, what does it mean? Did this impact the doctrine of Christianity? Did Christianity borrow these concepts and ideas from the religion? So everybody will answer that, those questions differently. But one thing that you cannot get away from, and this is what scholars will say, they will say, however you come down on these issues, one thing is certain. Christianity did not develop in a vacuum, period. Now, how you take these stories and what you want to do with them, because there are people of faith on both sides of, of these issues. So, but, it's, it, but it's interesting information. So that's, that's Jesus Gate 1. Mm-hmm. Are you and, <laughs> and, I was a and, little long. I'm sorry, but there's so much information here. I, mean, you know. I know. I'm just trying to sift out what we can cover in this limited amount of time. <laughs> I, know. Um, I, I did want to pull out the notion of Paul going out into this um, Hellenistic um, Greco-Roman environment and appealing uh, or, or, you know, pulling in the elements that would appeal to these um, uh, citizens and um, how he adapted uh, the requirements of Judaism. I, I thought you had a very, very funny passage in your book about the dietary laws and circumcision. Oh, yes, 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 yes. When Paul went out as a missionary and he confronted uh, Hellenistic society, now Hellenism, for those listeners who may not know, Hellenism is um, simply uh, Greek culture. When Alexander conquered the Mediterranean world 300 years before Jesus, uh, he brought Greek culture. He wasn't. He he was actually born in Macedonia, above just a country above Greece. But he was basically trained in Greek thought. His mother had him trained by Aristotle, and uh, but so he went. Said when he sets out to conquer the world, he takes Greek language with him. He takes Greek culture. He takes the gods. He takes the the nuances, the the beliefs, everything that was Greek. Uh, we call Hellenism. Uh, because actually the word the Greek word Hellas means Greece, and so that's where Hellenism comes from. So Hellenism permeated all that geographical area. So when Paul left Palestine, he goes out into into these Greek territories, and he finds you know the pagan religions. Uh, everybody's influenced by these things, uh, but he has a problem. He's trying to convert people to this new religion we call Christianity. Uh, he's pointing to the Messiah, the risen Christ, uh, and he wants to convert people. Uh, but remember, this is this is happening between uh, Paul dies in 65, so this is very early in Christianity. It's still part of Judaism. So Paul has to pay attention to the Jewish laws. He's got to conform to the Torah, the old, first five books of the Old Testament, which is the law of the Jews. And in there, specifically, if you want to convert, because they're still converting to Judaism, even though it's, it's a Christian sect of Judaism, he, he has to comply with the rules and the regulations. And two of those rules would be, circum, one of them would be circumcision, 
because this goes back all the way to the beginning of Judaism. Uh, Abraham, when he makes a, uh, a, a deal, not a deal, but an arrangement with God uh, to, uh, as a sign of the, what they call the covenant, his part of the agreement is that all Jewish men will be circumcised. So anyone who converts to Judaism has to be circumcised. And also, you have to obey the dietary laws, especially there's a whole set of them in the 11th uh, chapter of Leviticus. And all those laws, what you can eat, what you can't eat, and when you eat it, you've got to cook it a certain way and the whole thing. So, so he's got to go out and he's got to convert people to this new movement he calls Christianity, but still part of Judaism. So he has to obey these laws, and he's thinking to himself, uh-oh, how is this going to happen? How am I going to get grown men... Uh, to circumcise themselves or get themselves circumcised, this is not going to fly. And <laughs> any man, you know, would understand why. I mean, that's just not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he goes back to Peter and he goes and he and he says, "Look, uh, you know, I'm out here in the field. I'm trying to work with these people, but uh, these two laws, you know, you, I, we're not going to win anybody over if if we've got if we've got these stipulations in place. We've we've got to eliminate this." And so Peter and the disciples agree. Okay, Paul, you can go out. Don't worry about these two restrictions. And man, when those restrictions were lifted, I mean, people came to Christianity like uh, bees to the nectar. I mean, it was just uh, overwhelming. And, Mm -hmm. And that's where Christianity really became very successful. So fast forward to 325 and the Council of Nicaea. When uh, Constantine uh, had his own numinous experience um, and decided that he was going to make Christianity um, the state religion. Um, yeah, and actually he didn't make it the state religion. That doesn't happen until 382 under uh, Theodosius the Great. Oh, right. But, uh, mm-hmm. but in 325, he did elevate Christianity to, um, to the top of the pyramid. Mm-hmm. So he had great respect for Christianity. And the reason for that, Miriam, as, as you pointed out, you started to, uh, because of his particular experience, he, uh, when he went into battle, and, and this was a sign of the times, whenever you went into battle, you wanted to have the god or the gods with you. This was, this was, this was a big thing. Uh, we, uh, people back then thought that gods were very influential in the battles that they fought. So, so, uh, Constantine, he had this vision, and he looks up into the sky, and he sees the cross. And underneath the cross, it says, you shall conquer in this sign. And so he says, well, you know, what have I got to lose? So he took the cross and the emblem of the cross, and he put it on the shields of all his soldiers. Well, they never lost a battle. They went out and they fought, and every battle they they fought, they won. So uh, Constantine thought, wow, this is great. This must be a, a very powerful god. And so he elevates Christianity uh, to, like I said, at the top of the pyramid, above all the other religions, because there were a lot of pagan religions around. So, so this is great. Uh, and some people believe that without Constantine, certainly not without Paul, but without Constantine, Christianity might not have survived. But, uh, but he elevates it. But then he's got a problem. And here's the problem. No one can tell him who Jesus really is or who Jesus was. Everybody's arguing. We've got all these little Christian groups all over the Roman Empire, even in Palestine, all over the Roman Empire, and every, all these little groups of Christians have different views about Jesus. 
I mean, we have the 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 Martianites and the Ebionites and the Arians and the Adoptionists and all and the the Montanists. We have about twenty different Christian groups, and none of them can agree upon who Jesus is. This is called the problem of Christology, the nature of Jesus. Uh, the Marcionites, for example, they thought that Jesus was all human and not divine at all. The Epionites, no, they said, no, no, Jesus is, is completely divine. He's not human at all. It's just an illusion. And then the Arians, uh, uh, started by Arius, he, the Arians thought that Jesus was neither God nor man. He was, he was divine, all right, but he was in between. He was more than man and less than God. That was, he was pushing that at the Council of Nicaea in 325, because Constantine pulled all these groups together. He said, look, we've got to figure out who Jesus is. So he called all the bishops of the church all over the empire and brought them to Nicaea, which is part of Asia Minor, Turkey today, we call it. Istanbul is the capital there. So he brings them to Nicaea, and, uh, and they all meet, and they try to decide, finalize the doctrine of who Jesus was. And they came up with the doctrine of the Trinity. And it was at the suggestion of the emperor, strangely enough, he used the word, and I'm not going to even try to pronounce it right, I'll just say homoousius, <laughs> which, which is a Greek word which basically means of the same substance. So he was saying, hey, it, we, we've got to decide who Jesus was. He was of the same substance as, as God. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Arius stood up and said, wait a minute, you can't say that's blasphemy. How can Jesus be God? No, no, Jesus is more than man, but he's less than God. He's not co-eternal with God. He's not co-equal with God. How can you say that? But Arius didn't win the day. Constantine did. Of course, he was the emperor, right? So who's going to argue? And, uh, and so the doctrine of the Trinity is adopted. God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you ever read that doctrine, I think, I, yeah, I know I put it in my book, and maybe you got to it or not, but... It's really hard to understand what in the world. The one is three, and the three are one, and they're not real, but they are. And I mean, it just, <laughs> I'm sure in Greek it was a lot more understandable. But, uh, <laughs> well, it was Greek to me in English. <laughs> exactly. But that's okay, because it's, it's, that's the way religion is. There's, if you could understand it all and, and have absolute knowledge on everything, uh, there wouldn't be any need for faith. And sometimes, sometimes the language is couched present a reflection of a reality that we can wrap our minds around, because it's in the supernatural world. So we try our best with the words that we have, but they don't always quite measure up. So, so this is not to denigrate the Trinitarian concept or any of it. The book is not there to denigrate Christianity. This is not a religious book. It's a book about religions. In other words, uh, what I'm saying here is that this this is a book about what has happened historically to religion, to religious thought, how it came about, who was involved, what are the what are the cultural surroundings of these, how was the Bible uh, transcribed? What these are things we can study. Uh, scholars do not deal with the questions, nor should they. They can have opinions, but they don't deal with the questions of, gee, uh, does God exist, or was Jesus really divine? Or Those are what we call metaphysical questions, uh, and, and those are questions based on belief and faith. But what scholars can do is investigate uh, certain aspects of religion. For example, if somebody says the Bible is, is uh, without error, well, that we can investigate and look at. Those, those are tangible things we can 
we can look at and, and come to logical conclusions based on the evidence at hand. So, uh, so, uh, so this is mainly a, a book about what we have discovered academically and historically about Jesus and the Bible. Now, one of the points that you make in uh, Jesus Gate 3, if you will, is that these revelations have come, uh, have, have been um, understood by the, 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 the priesthood, the ministers, um, but the people... For hundreds not, of years, yes. Indeed, and the people did not have a need to know. Um, right. In, in fact, they felt that too too much knowledge was was going to spoil them, and, and yeah, it's going the, to derail the, the yeah. The lady, yeah. <laughs> and okay, we won't go into the politics of it, although that was clearly a major consideration. You know, the the power and control. Right. And by the way, there is some uh, justification for that fear. I mean, some of these things can derail people. Uh, and the problem is that sometimes people throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, people have to understand there's a lot of literature out there, uh, I, I would say counter-literature, that even knowing all of these facts might approach it. They put a different spin on it. And that's what everybody has to do. They have to look at this information and decide which way they want to jump. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of uh, wonderful scholars, uh, intelligent scholars, that would argue uh, some of the conclusions that a person might take based on this what seems to be negative information. I think what you're arguing in your book, Ernie, is that this information should not have been suppressed. That's right. That an informed that an informed laity can make up their own minds, but at least give them the opportunity. You Miriam, were, that's perfect. Just what you I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> Thank you. You were a minister for almost 20 years. What yes. what was your experience? What was your subjective experience during this time? Well, my ministry in the church, I mean, I oh, it was wonderful. I I had a great time. I was mainly a youth minister and uh I worked in uh, a little church uh, up in Cupertino, California. Uh, it was United Methodist Church, and uh, we started out with 12 kids. I ended up with about 300. Our high was 346. Wow. So we really, uh, we had the the best uh, youth group, I think, in the history of the United Methodist Church, certainly in California, if not uh, worldwide. I'm not sure about that. But, but so I think you also really, said a few things that were not very well received by your parishioners. Uh, yeah, that... <laughs> Well, even, yes, that's true. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, I just, I had a, a friend of mine emailed me after reading my book, The Jesus Gate, The History of Concealment uh, Unraveled. Hey, by the way, if anybody ever looks up this book, make sure they do it with the subtitle, because there is another book called Jesus Gate, and if all you put into the Google, for example, is Jesus Gate, my book won't show up. <laughs> it's strange, but, and you can't copyright a title, that's why, so... Either by my name or, or the complete title of the book is how you reach it. But anyway, so or just go to email. New Consciousness Review, and there will be a link directly to Amazon. Oh, great! Thank you. Checks in the mail. I'll send it right away. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Well, Carry on. Well, here's this. Here's this. I just got this email back from a. Now, this is a good friend, right? Mm-hmm. Who is a obviously like most everybody else is a victim of Jesus Gate. <laughs> 
doesn't this is the first time he read anything my book was what is you know what is he talking about so here's what he wrote back he says i have completed one half of your writing and find it disturbing distasteful and disgusting demented delirious disingenuous sort of discriminatory and furthermore disheartening <laughs> yeah so and this is from a friend you know, can you can you imagine? I mean, it's because people are shocked by this information. Now, uh, he called later, and he finished reading my book, and he came around to a different position because he started to understand what I was trying to say. But uh, so that, and 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 we're still good friends, so that that's no problem. Uh, it, it was fine. But uh, but that gives you an idea when you're in the church what happens to these poor ministers that they try to bring this information down into the congregation. Uh, they have a hard time. It's not all their fault. It's part of it is the laity has been trained to to think that that which is sacred is considered inalterable. This is the mindset. This is what happens when you start saying you have the only way or the one way, and your and your religious book is infallible or it's the only book that you ought to be looking at or this is the only road you ought to be on and everybody else is wrong. This is what happens. You ha- you have this response. And and I can understand it, because Miriam, actually, uh, you know, honestly, I was there when I went to seminary. This stuff blew me away. Mm-hmm. It just, I, I could not figure out how there could be two parallel Christianities, the one I grew up with in my local church, and now being exposed to all this information. It just, uh, and that's why I decided someday I'm going to write these books and try to get this information to the laity. So there you go. But well, I, but I well, had a wonderful time in the church to answer your question. It, it it was wonderful, but I did run into when I tried to uh bring this information into the pulpit, I I did get some flack. Mm-hmm. Uh, no doubt. People to some people called me the antichrist, you know, and <laughs> it was it was pretty pretty scary there for a while. Well, but most in, people It's interesting to contemplate the um the kind of opposing forces of the evolution of religious thinking versus the the kind of comfortable anchor that the familiar uh, presentation of the church provides, particularly in changing times. Right, that's true. Uh, that that's very true. And and people, you know, I'm reminded of that uh, that uh, that movie, A Few Good Men. Do you remember that with Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson? Well, anyway, Tom Cruise is an attorney, and he's trying to get this uh, Colonel Jack Nicholson's playing the Colonel part, and he and Tom Cruise is back going, "What we want is the truth. What we want is the truth." And finally, the Colonel burst out and he says, "You can't handle the truth," you know, it's that sort of thing. And and sometimes people can't handle the truth, and they're looking for the old time religion for that assurance. They want answers. They don't want question marks put on that which they consider sacred. But, you know, this is the only way we evolve if we keep pushing the envelope. That's why we don't worship the sun gods anymore, and, and, and we don't cut people's heart out on, on the altars, because we've evolved beyond that simplistic kind of religious entanglement. And, and we've been doing that forever, and, and we're ready to take another step to move forward in our spiritual understanding. But that can't happen if we're trapped in in dogma and and in in belief systems that hold us uh, down in in ways that really are destructive i think what you're describing now is echoing something that we're seeing across society it's the struggle between um 
power, control, you know, uh, give up your liberties and we will make sure that you're safe right. versus the, the, the rise of the individual and using the Internet, the individual's ability to access information and make up their own mind based on a broader spectrum of information, not just that which they have been spoon-fed. That's right, and, and and of course, like any situation, it, it's a it, there, it's not black and white for sure. There's a lot of gray areas here, and uh, and so you have to be careful. I mean, uh, there is room for a certain amount of of uh, assurance and dogmatism, and but it 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 should not counter reality. It should not be in the place of what we now know is otherwise. It, it shouldn't uh, conflict with known knowledge. Uh, that's, hey, by the way, speaking of knowledge, I do want to make this comment. The fact that you know, the fact that you have this knowledge, that you, for example, myself, if I, I've learned a lot, and now compared to most people, I know a heck of a lot more about religion than they do. But that, and I make this clear to my students, that does not make me spiritually superior. There can be a guy out, uh, you know, in the deepest uh, part of the African jungle running through there with a spear in his hand that is more in tune and and centered and more spiritually inclined than I am. Uh, I think of my mom. She was, she didn't, you know, she didn't get past the ninth grade because the family was very poor, but she was, she was a saint, you know, and she doesn't know any of what I know. I mean, it's, or, well, she's not with us anymore, but she didn't know anything of what I know, and but she was a saint. So knowledge in and of itself doesn't necessarily make you a better person. But I think what it helps us as a community, as, as, uh, as a species, to move beyond where we are to the next stage where we can improve our lives and understand our, our spirituality in ways that, um, that are better and more meaningful. Uh, it's, and, it's, perhaps it's even, always... and perhaps even more direct, because I think one of the things that people are experiencing more and more, particularly in my uh, my little universe uh, is direct mystical experiences, whether people are having near-death experiences or out-of-body experiences, um, just like Constantine had on the battlefield or like uh, uh, St. Paul had on the road to Damascus. It's this direct experience of revelation. Um, That's true, Miriam, but that experience has to be tempered with knowledge. It has to be tempered with rational thought. Uh, it doesn't mean that, and we'll never know everything, even if we apply all our knowledge. We have to leave room for, for, the, for the spiritual side, for the mystical side. So in that regard, you're right. But we have to be very careful as to what we pass off as a spiritual experience, because it's only turned upside down later when science comes along and says, oh, that wasn't really a spiritual experience. You see, now we know what what this was all about. It's the same thing with Constantine, that you, since you brought him up. It, 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 I don't think it was the gods that were helping Constantine win the war, but that's what he thought in his mind, and that's how he applied it to his life. But, uh, but that's not the way we fight wars anymore, because we know better. We need AK-47s and uh, you know, some bombs and <laughs> things like that. We don't depend on the gods for that. And if we did, we'd be like Saddam Hussein, who who lost, you know, the war over there because he said not to worry, God will take care of us. Well, that's that's false perception of spirituality. So there, there's black and white here. There's good and bad, and you have to temper that. 
Well, let's hear it for Gray. Uh, what? Gray, <laughs> balance the comment. Oh, Gray, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, there's a lot of that around, and uh, and I think people have to come to the place where they realize that because this isn't uh, this isn't easy. Uh, my spiritual spiritual journey is not settled. It it continues to grow, but it it's it certainly is not like everybody else's, and I don't expect theirs to be like mine. But we have to allow each other that freedom to grow, and this is one of the problems of being fundamentalist in a sense that you don't allow people outside of your own belief system to believe what they feel is important. Well, I think that is just the most important message that I would love for people to take away from this. It's understand that this is all the attempt of man, men and women. Yes. We didn't even get into the woman part. I would have loved to. Perhaps we'll have to talk about that in another show, Ernie. Sure. Um, and I did have that in my... You did, too, and it was I, fascinating. I, I really did. Hey, by the way, Ashley Judd made a comment. You know who Ashley Judd is? I've heard the She's name. She's a movie star from the, from the Judds, the, the country western singers. But Ashley Judd made a... She was interviewed on TV, and i just leave you with this. She made an interesting comment. I just loved it. She said, I am in love with the God of my understanding. Wow, that that is powerful. That is really powerful because she's saying, you know, this is what I think. And just because you might think something different doesn't make you wrong. Exactly. So anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, and I commend you for expanding the understanding, Ernie. And I want to uh, remind people that the name of the book we're talking about was Jesus Gate, A History of Concealment Unraveled by Ernie Bringus. Ernie, do you have a website? I do. Uh, well, I mean, it's it, all it does. It's not really. It's just a website that tells you, uh, explains the book a little bit, and gives you a, a contact if you want to purchase the book or something like that with Amazon.com, I think it is. But anyway, why do you? Would you like it? I mean, it's it's JesusGate.net. Okay, JesusGate.net. JesusGate.net. And you also have right. a website for your uh, rock group. Oh, the Ripcords. Yeah, the recording that that would be Ripcords.info. Okay. But actually, if you go to JesusGate.net, that will have that information there also. Very good. It'll give you the other side. So. Well, well Ernie, Miriam, thank you. It's, a, it's been a pleasure, really, and, and I, I want to wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And the same to you and to all of our listeners. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. And I hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Angel Rose O'Grady, discussing her book, a Time of Change, Akashic Guidance for Spiritual Transformation. And now we're going to close with our track of the week, If You Really Knew Who I Am, by Teresa Tudry. If you really knew who I am, you'd rise up in bliss. In a moment like this, you'd be set free. If you really knew who I am, you'd get off your knees, lay your body on the breeze, and then begin. If you really knew who I am, your heart would burst with joy, like a baby with. Oh, you'd know the moment 
tight Like an eagle it would glide its way back home And you'd know love if you have never known love And you'd be free Uplifting and inspirational songbook and CD package featuring songs from some of the most celebrated New Thought artists of today. It's distributed by Hal Leonard and available at orubyproductions.com. Teresa's website is teresatujuri.net. That's T-E-R-E-S-A-T-U-D-U-R-Y dot net. Well, I hope you'll join us next week. And in the meantime, visit our website at ncreview.com for more great books, interviews, videos, lots of great stuff. So until next week, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.